It's Sunday, February 10th, 1980, a bitter cold winter's day in Washington state. Temperatures struggle to get above the mid-40s, but locals aren't letting that spoil their weekend. Tina Bar is a stretch of sand along the banks of the Columbia River, nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. It's a popular location for those looking to get away from city life. Among the families scattered along the beach are the Ingrams, Dwayne, Patricia, and their eight-year-old son, Brian, who have spent the past few days camped nearby. Brian has been tasked with helping his dad build a campfire on the beach. Dwayne gathers wood while Brian looks around the sand, searching for the perfect spot. He settles on a patch that looks flat and dry and kneels down to start scooping out a hollow for the firewood and kindling. Brian digs into the cool sand, but after a few handfuls, his fingers brush up against something unfamiliar. Not stones, something softer. It looks and feels like old newspaper. That'll make for good kindling, he thinks, and brushes the sand away to reveal more. What he sees makes him stop mid-scoop. It's paper, all right, but not the kind he thinks. There's a picture printed on it. The face of Andrew Jackson, seventh president of the United States. Not a newspaper at all, but a $20 bill. Brian shouts excitedly for his dad to come see what he's found. Maybe he'll be allowed to keep it. As his dad jogs across, Brian keeps digging and is amazed to see it's not just a single bill. There are three stacks of them. The banknotes look old, damaged, some have tattered edges. His eight-year-old mind goes into overdrive. He's never seen this much money in one place. Dwayne eyes it suspiciously. Nobody carries around this much money to accidentally drop it on a beach. He does the responsible thing and shares their find with local police. What the Ingrams don't know at the time is that they've stumbled across a clue to one of the most enduring mysteries in modern American history. In total, the amount recovered by Brian Ingram adds up to $5,800, but it's not the size of the find that gets investigators excited. It's where the bills come from. The serial numbers confirm that the money is part of the $200,000 ransom paid nine years earlier to the mysterious hijacker known only as D.B. Cooper. Back in 1971, Cooper threatened to blow up a flight bound for Seattle unless he was paid the ransom in unmarked $20 bills. The airline paid up, Cooper parachuted out, and neither he nor the money have been seen since. In a bizarre coincidence, the find comes exactly 3,000 days since Cooper disappeared. Over the next few days, teams of FBI agents comb the beach looking for more of the cash or any other clue that might lead them to Cooper. It won't be easy to pick up a trail that's been cold for almost a decade. But with an open indictment waiting for Cooper, the FBI will throw whatever it takes at this new lead. What they can't know at this point is just how tangled this case will become. That in the coming years, there will be not one, but multiple deathbed confessions. 
from people who all claim that they are the infamous D.B. Cooper. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of D.B. Cooper, of the people who confessed to being him only to die before it could be proven, about the only unsolved hijacking on record in the U.S., a man who jumped out of a plane and into history, the legend that sprang up around the heist that still endures to this day, a procession of over 900 suspects that kept the FBI chasing their tails for decades. And a question that endures to this day. Who is D.B. Cooper? I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The discovery of part of the ransom money sparks a number of theories. Most are based on an assumption that the bills have been washed downstream from one of the Columbia's many tributaries. Experts who examine them say that the way the bills have disintegrated is consistent with them having made their own way along the river rather than being deliberately planted. Agent Ralph Himmelsbach leads the excavation of the beach. He has been one of the more public faces of the investigation since 1971 and goes on record saying that the bundles of cash had to have been deposited on shore within the first year or two following the hijack. Anything longer would have meant the elastic bands holding the notes together would be significantly more damaged. This conflicts with geological evidence, though. The river was dredged back in 1974, and clay from the bottom had been deposited at Tina Bar. The bills were buried above those layers of clay, suggesting they were deliberately buried after the dredging. Another mystery that the FBI cannot explain is why 10 bills are missing from one stack, or how the three stacks stayed together in the river when they were separated from the bulk of the cash. What seemed like a break in the case ultimately provides more questions than answers. 
Despite the initial excitement of the cash on Tina Bar, for Agent Himmelsbach, it's too little too late. His retirement party is already arranged, so whatever twists and turns the case takes now, it'll be without the man who has led the case for nine years. It's at his retirement party two months later in April that year that Himmelsbach meets Bill Radachok for the first time. Radachok was the first officer aboard Flight 305 the day it was hijacked by D.B. Cooper. Their paths had never crossed after Radachok was interviewed by another agent back in 1971. Himmelsbach is touched that he's made the effort to meet face to face. The two men share a peculiar bond, both being central to the case, albeit in very different ways, and will go on to form a friendship well into their twilight years. The interesting point of discussion at the retirement party, though, is Radichak's opinion of where the FBI have been searching for signs of Cooper. He says on that night back in 1971, he's pretty sure that Flight 305 had drifted slightly off course and passed to the east of Portland. The FBI still believe that the plane had kept on track and flown to the west of the city. The spot that the ransom cache was found lies to the west, seeming to land weight to the FBI's view. But who would be better placed to comment than a man who helped fly the route? It's unclear whether Radichak shared this revelation with other agents at the time, but if he did, his colleagues ignored him. The FBI's official position is that their version of the flight path is the correct one. The focus of the FBI investigation remains on the initial landing zone identified back in 1971. But that area becomes seriously compromised only a month after Himmelsbach's retirement. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupts, 70 miles northeast of where the money was found. Some say that the volcanic ash and debris scattered as a result will have obliterated any lingering trace that Cooper may have left behind. It seems his trail is as cold as the wilderness he parachuted into all those years ago. And that's how it stays for another 15 years, with no major developments in the case. This isn't the end of the story, however. Not by a long shot. A slew of suspects will soon come out of the woodwork openly admitting that they are the infamous D.B. Cooper. The first of whom is Dwayne Weber. On March 28, 1995, right before Dwayne Weber passes away from kidney failure in Pensacola, Florida, he drops a bombshell on his wife, Joe. I'm Dan Cooper, he says. They prove to be some of his last words, and she's left to process exactly what that could mean. There was nobody in the hospital room to verify his confession, but she sets about sifting back through what she knows of his life. When she starts to peel back the layers, the number of things that point to his words possibly being true start to stack up. Could she have been married to the most infamous plane hijacker in American history all these years? When Weber and Joe first met and married in 1977, he was an insurance salesman. He told her about a stint in the army as a younger man, but never went into much detail. It's not until after he dies that she starts to unearth new and disturbing details about the man she thought she knew. 
It turns out Dwayne Weber isn't the only name her husband had been known by. Several months after he dies, Joe finds an old wallet belonging to him when she's cleaning out the car. Inside is a driving license with his picture, but the name reads John Carson Collins. It's not a name she's heard before. Had he simply changed his name to Dwayne Weber for personal reasons? Or had he assumed a fake identity to hide from something? A string of half-remembered conversations flood back to her. Joe claims Dwayne once told her that he heard his knee jumping out of a plane. She assumed it was during his time in the army, but now wonders if it was connected to his deathbed claims. She also recalls seeing an old Northwest Airlines ticket her husband had hung onto, but it disappeared soon after she asked about it. Had he been keeping a souvenir of his daring hijack? Weber, like Cooper, was also a heavy smoker and drank the same brand of bourbon Cooper had ordered on board the flight. But perhaps the most shocking connection Joe finds links to the cash Brian Ingram dug up on Tina Barr. In around August 1979, around six months before the discovery of the cash, Weber had taken Joe on a trip. He told her it was for an insurance convention in Seattle and they left a few days early to do some sightseeing along the way. One pit stop Weber made was near Lake Maryland, where Joe recalls him saying the oddest thing. That's where Cooper walked out of the woods. She recalls him telling her, gesturing towards the tree-lined embankment. The name meant nothing to her at the time, and she didn't think to question him any further. She didn't realize it, but they were in the exact same area many believe was Cooper's drop zone. The couple then drove on to the Red Lion Motel outside Vancouver, Washington and booked in for one night. The next morning, Weber awoke around 7 a.m. Joe remembers him being a little cryptic, saying only that he had somewhere to go. When he returned hours later, Joe noticed his hands were covered in mud like he'd been digging. After cleaning himself up, they jumped in the car and continued their journey. Joe noticed a paper bag by his feet. When she asked him what was inside, he said it was just some trash she needed to get rid of. The next time they stopped for a break, he threw the bag into a nearby river. The spot he chose to dispose of the so-called trash? Just nine miles upstream of Tina Bar, where the D.B. Cooper ransom bills would surface nine months later. If these memories are the fragments of a story, The things she finds in the months after his death are the glue that binds them together. Along with his will is a key for a safety deposit box. Amongst the assorted documents, there is a copy of Soldier of Fortune magazine, open at an article called The Man with All the Secrets. It's accompanied by a picture of a man falling through the air wearing a parachute. It's not about Cooper, but it's a startling coincidence that stays with her. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The last revelation is on one of his old tax returns. One dated 1971 shows that months after the hijack of Flight 305, Weber bought two brand new cars with cash, costing over $7,000. His declared income that year was a little over $1,000, so where did he get the extra cash from? It's enough to prompt Joe to call the FBI, who turned the spotlight on Weber as a potential suspect, even if he can never be brought to justice now. They run the name on the ID found in his wallet and discover that he has previously done time under the name John Carson Collins. Although they don't share what it was for, Joe is adamant that it's nothing more than a pseudonym and that Dwayne Weber is his real name. The FBI don't confirm which is correct, leaving Joe to cling onto the hope that this is one thing he didn't lie about. One of the sketch artists they use for the original drawings said that in their opinion, Weber was the closest physical match to the man the two stewardesses had described back in 1971. His age, weight, and height all make him a good fit for the profile, right down to the fact he wore his hair in the same wavy Marcelled style that Tina Mucklau, the stewardess who had the most contact with Cooper, described. They run his fingerprints against those lifted from the plane. There's no match, but this is far from conclusive. Those prints could have come from any of the passengers on board, or even from previous flights. His DNA is tested against samples taken from the clip-on tie investigators believe may have belonged to Cooper. Again, no match, but this does not conclusively eliminate Weber as a suspect. They have no way of proving that Cooper had worn that tie. It's just an assumption they run with as nobody else claimed it as their own. In the absence of anything more concrete, though, three years after Weber's death, the FBI say they're no longer pursuing him as a suspect. Joe is adamant, however, that Weber was who he claimed to be on his deathbed. She reaches out to former FBI agent, Ralph Himmelsbach, eager to speak to the man who was there when it all happened. Himmelsbach believes her claims merit further investigation. He comments that she doesn't seem interested in any of the publicity that would come with it if it were true. He's long since removed from the investigation, though. The current team disagree, and Weber, for now at least, is removed from the lines of inquiry they continue to pursue. It's another seven years before a new name catches the FBI's attention. This one is a little less conventional a suspect. Someone with no criminal record. Someone who, if their confession is believed, might just have had the perfect disguise to walk away from the hijacking. In 2002, Pat and Ron Foreman get in touch with the team assigned to the case with a story that could put a whole new spin on the Cooper mystery. Back in 1977, they owned a small plane that they kept at an airfield south of Seattle. There, they met and became friends with a local librarian by the name of Barbara Dayton. Even then, six years on, Cooper's heist was a regular topic of conversation. 
Pat and Ron recall Barb being quite outspoken on the matter at times, to the point of sounding agitated whenever someone suggested a new theory of what actually happened. In one such exchange, Ron tried to defuse the situation by cracking a joke, suggesting that for all they knew, Barb could be D.B. Cooper. She didn't see the funny side and told him not to say that again. Their friendship grew thanks to their shared love of flying. And two years later, they tell agents of the double bombshell Barb dropped on them over the space of a few weeks in 1979. The first of these came out of left field. Barb told them that she was a trans woman and had undergone gender-affirming surgery. Given the name Bobby Dayton at birth, she legally changed her name to Barbara in December 1969. A few weeks after she told them this, the foremans had Barb and a few other friends over for dinner. Ron told agents how the subject of Cooper cropped up yet again. As a joke, he walked over to Barb, parted her hair to one side, and slid a pair of sunglasses on her to mimic the sketch of Cooper. Ron snapped a picture with his Polaroid camera. As they watched the picture take form, Ron's smile freezes. The memory of the FBI's artist sketch flashes to mind, similarities a little too close for comfort. An uncomfortable silence settled over the room. Barb gave Ron a steely glare. The other couple in the room looked uncomfortable until Barb finally broke the silence. Okay, she said. I am Dan Cooper. Before a stunned Ron could react, she tore up the picture and went home. Later that week, they had a talk to try and clear the air after Barb's shocking revelation. During this chat, Ron recalls how Barb went into an incredible amount of detail about what she allegedly did back in November 1971. Apparently, she resented the FAA after failing twice to get her commercial pilot's license back in the 60s. This, combined with bouts of depression following her surgery, pushed her into action. She told Ron how she had left her car at a bus station in Oregon and traveled to Portland Airport on public transport. She wore a suit and tie but had a blouse underneath and used shoe polish to darken her hair. She went into detail about the jump, how she jumped from the plane at 10,000 feet and free fell until 1,000 feet when she opened her parachute. Barb told Ron that she had landed near an orchard and stashed the money and suit in a nearby irrigation cistern before heading home. Ron hadn't known quite what to believe. He pointed out that Barb at five foot eight was a good four inches shorter than Cooper's estimated height of six feet. But Barb countered with comments about the dim cabin lighting and how it's hard to tell how tall someone is when they're sitting down for most of the time. For whatever reason, Ron decides not to contact the authorities in the years after Barb's apparent confession. And Barb cools off the subject, eventually saying she hadn't been serious. As Ron and Pat's interest in flying waned in the 80s and 90s, they saw less and less of Barb. It was only after Barb died in 2002 that the foremans decided to approach the FBI. In spite of Barb doubling back on her confession, they'd always found what she'd said hard to shake. Investigators rake over every detail of Barb's life, including speaking to a doctor who had seen her eight days before the D.B. Cooper hijack. He tells agents how Barb had been lonely and depressed, 
she had spoken about money being tight with little prospect of work. At her next appointment, two weeks after the hijack, he remembers her being like a different person. He tells them how she had seemed much happier and that her money worries weren't an issue anymore, although she didn't elaborate as to why. The FBI is able to get samples of Barb's DNA from some of her possessions to test against the clip-on tie found on the plane. Just like with Dwayne Weber, there's no match. The FBI doesn't issue any public statement about Barb Dayton as a suspect. Her place in the story is probably summed up by Jeff Gray, acclaimed author of Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. They can't prove she was Cooper, he says, but they can't prove she wasn't. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. After the brief flare of interest following Barb Dayton's alleged confession, the investigation into D.B. Cooper goes quiet for a number of years. As far as the FBI are concerned, it's as cold as a case can get. Agents come and go. The new man heading up the team is Special Agent Larry Carr. Other than Ralph Himmelsbach, Carr is probably the best-known agent linked to the case. He takes over in 2006 and tries a different tactic to his predecessors. Carr attempts to build more of a partnership with the general public when he appeals for information. Under him, this case is more of an open book, and he shares information and evidence with the public that, thus far, has been known only to those on the case. Things like witness statements and details of suspects investigated. He even goes as far as to share the case files with a civilian cold case team led by Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History in Seattle. Kay's team is over 40 strong and largely made up of scientists. Using cutting edge techniques, they make some interesting finds. Using an electron microscope, they identify minute particles of rare minerals on the clip-on tie. One of the rare applications for these minerals was by Boeing in the 1970s as part of a supersonic flight project. Could this mean that Cooper actually worked for Boeing? This would certainly explain his knowledge of aircraft speed and design. Carr and his agents run with a theory, but like every time before, they strike out. No new suspects are identified. Carr stays at the helm of the investigation until 2016, when after 45 years of searching, the FBI finally gives up they issue a statement confirming that D.B. Cooper's case is closed. They'll only reopen it if any trace of the money or parachutes are found. If any new evidence is uncovered, it'll be looked at. 
But until then, Carr and his team are reassigned. They don't know it at the time, but there's one final suspect yet to surface. One who, like Dwayne Weber, confesses to being D.B. Cooper. Unlike Weber, however, whose wife was the only witness to his words, this final confession is caught on tape. On May 10, 2018, two years after the case was closed, 84-year-old Carl Lauren holds a press conference to promote a book he has written. In it, he claims that a close friend of his, a man called Walter Recca, is D.B. Cooper. Like many of the suspects who came before him, Recca passed away before the FBI could question him. He died in 2014, but Lauren says he has proof of his friend's claims. This comes in the form of audio tapes, where Rekka talks him through exactly how he pulled off the audacious hijack. Walter Rekka was a former paratrooper and intelligence operative. At the time of the skyjacking, he was an iron worker, part of a crew working on the Grand Coulee Dam that spans the nearby Columbia River. The very same river that flows along the banks of Tina Bar, where the ransom money was found. Lauren recalls Rekka making throwaway remarks long before the hijack about pulling off a robbery with a parachute, but passed it off as harmless chatter. Lauren says he asked Rekka about the D.B. Cooper story many times over the years and was rebuffed each time. But on Thanksgiving Eve 2008, 36 years to the day since Cooper leapt from the plane, Rekka allegedly cracked. Rekka allowed Lauren to record their conversations over the next six weeks and signed a notarized letter, giving Lauren permission to use the contents in any way he saw fit after Rekka was dead. From how Rekka describes the night of the hijacking, Lauren works out that he landed near the town of Klee Elam, east of Seattle. There, Rekka claims to have met a trucker called Jeff Oziadax at the Tina Way Junction Cafe just outside of town. Lauren manages to track Oziadax down, and the trucker confirms that he did indeed cross paths with a stranger on the night of the hijack. Oziadax tells Lauren how the man he met asked him to relay directions on the phone to a friend so he could be picked up. There are elements of what Rekka says that don't align with those familiar with the case. The town of Klee Elam, where he claims to have landed, is 150 miles from the drop zone that the FBI had focused on. It's to the northeast of Portland, so could tie in with the altered flight path that First Officer Bill Radichak had indicated. He's also not as close a match to the composite sketch as other suspects have been. With the case being officially closed and without physical evidence, the Bureau refuses to reopen the case. Rekka's taped confession falls on deaf ears. The FBI issues a statement saying only that it would be inappropriate to comment on specific tips provided to them, and that no evidence to date proved the culpability of any suspect beyond a reasonable doubt. Lauren, however, doesn't let it go. He enlists the help of Joe Koenig. Koenig is a former member of Michigan State Police turned private investigator. He's worked with the FBI on some of their highest profile cases, including the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. 
Koenig agrees to analyze the recordings and documents, plus speak to witnesses. His opinion when he's finished? Walter Recca is D.B. Cooper. Recca can be heard discussing elements of the case on the tapes that Koenig believes only the hijacker could know, including the fact that Cooper used superglue to try and obscure his fingerprints and that he tried to give a handful of cash to one of the stewardesses. Both of these facts were made public by the FBI in 2015, but the taped conversations between Recca and Lauren occurred between 2008 and 2014. As compelling an argument as Koenig makes, without hard physical evidence, the FBI doesn't budge on their earlier statement. Walter Recca's claims of being D.B. Cooper will remain just that, claims, unproven in the eyes of the law. And so, the legend of D.B. Cooper lives on, perhaps even more so for being unsolved. An HBO special in 2020 profiles the main suspects, and top of the list is a familiar one, Dwayne Weber. It looks unlikely now, though, that he or any of the other suspects will ever conclusively be identified as D.B. Cooper. The passage of time and lack of hard evidence has worn away the FBI's resolve. Ralph Himmelsbach once described Cooper as a dirty, rotten crook, but he also achieved something of a cult status. It was a gutsy, anti-establishment move in the era of Vietnam and Nixon. One man beating the establishment, outmaneuvering the FBI, and making a clean getaway without hurting a soul. He's been the subject of songs and movies, his face immortalized on t-shirts and posters, as well as events such as D.B. Cooper bowling tournaments. The town of Ariel, a place many thought to be in the drop zone, still holds an annual D.B. Cooper celebration. A restaurant in Salt Lake City calls itself D.B. Cooper's and hosts jump night parties, giving away either a round trip ticket to Seattle or parachuting lessons. In amongst a cast of almost a thousand suspects, only one thing is certain. Even if the man himself has died, his legend will continue to live on for years to come. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Dorothy King, New York City's most eminent flapper. On a frosty morning in March, 1923, Dorothy King was found lying dead in her Upper West Side apartment. With a bottle of chloroform at her feet, thousands of dollars worth of jewelry stolen, and her arm broken behind her back, it was clear she'd been murdered. Three suspects were linked to her death. An elusive, mysterious older lover, a violent and abusive criminal, and a jealous, starstruck roommate. But when a deathbed confession surfaces six years after her death, it frames just one of these individuals and changes everything the police and public believe.
Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Payne. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Thank you.